You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Evil minds that plot destruction. Sorcerer of death construction. In the fields of bodies burning. Machine keeps turning Death and hatred to mankind Poisoning their brainwash minds Welcome to the Anarchist World this week Broadcast across Australia on the National Community Radio Satellite Listen to the Anarchist World this week Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse Listen to analysis of local, national and international events analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Welcome to the Anarchist World This Week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Satellite. My name is Joseph Toscano. This program is coming to you from the studios of 3CR in Melbourne. The program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. If you wonder what anarchism is all about, simple concept, anarchos without rulers. Not without rules, without rulers. What gives rulers the ability to determine the fate of billions of people as we see around the world every day of our existence? Simply inequalities in power and wealth. So the anarchist struggle is the struggle to devolve power, share power and hold wealth in common and use it for the common good. So if you're involved in the struggle to share power, and use wealth for the common good, whether you call yourself a Christian, a Hindu, a Muslim, an atheist, an agnostic, an anarchist. You're an anarchist. Sorry to tell you that. It's a horrible thing to think about, isn't it? That simple concepts like removing the ability of rulers to determine the fate of billions of people seems to be some type of radical ideology. Well, it's not. It's an ideology that's been practised since time in memorial. Now, I'd like to start off with something which is um, interesting to me, maybe boring to you, but it's interesting to me, and it's interesting to me because of the associations that go back 168 years. Saturday the 3rd of December marks the 168th anniversary of the Eureka Rebellion. Now, I can see you eyes glaze over and you think, I can't remember what happened yesterday. Why should I worry? Why should I celebrate the Eureka Rebellion? Now, there are many papers and books and television series which which look at Eureka, and most of them are historical analysis. We don't carry out it. We don't go to Ballarat on the 3rd of December to mark a historical occasion. We go to mark an occasion which continue to reverberate 160 years later. Because the ideas involved in the Eureka Rebellion are ideas which are still, still central to the struggle for an egalitarian community. And those ideas are summed up in the Eureka Oath. We swear by the Southern Cross 
to stand truly by each other and fight to defend our rights and liberties. Now, this oath was sworn on the 29th of November at Bakery Hill in 1854. This is an extraordinary statement, which I think puts to shame many other oaths and statements we put so much faith in today in 2022, like the private investment for private profit mantra. We, that's everybody, we, not Anglo-Saxons, not people with pointy heads, but we, everybody, we swear by the Southern Cross. The Southern Cross was basically not a religious observation, but remember, during the gold rushes, people lived in tent cities and they didn't have TV, computers, they weren't gamers. At the end of the day, after a hard day's work, you'd be lying on the ground, you'd be looking up at the sky and you'd see the Southern Cross. The Southern Cross reminded you that you had come to another part of the world because you can only see the Southern Cross in the Southern Hemisphere. And as most of the people who arrived here came from the Northern Hemisphere, to them, it was a symbol of the sacrifices they had made. We swear by the Southern Cross to stand truly by each other. Simple concept. The foundation stone of trade unionism. Solidarity. We swear by the Southern Cross to stand truly by each other and fight to defend our rights and liberties. Now, many of these people were political refugees who had survived the 1848 wave of revolutions which swept through Europe, who were forced to leave their homes, their livelihoods behind because of the position they'd taken in those revolts. Many of these people were people from England, chartists, people who had been struggling for decades to introduce universal male suffrage in England. So these weren't adventurous who'd come here to, you know, make their fortune. But many of these people had very deep-held beliefs which were not based on a religious ideology. So... We celebrate on the 3rd of December, we celebrate the central elements of the Eureka Rebellion and I'll go through those central elements because most other historians and commentators never seem to actually grasp the essence of the rebellion. And the central elements are direct democracy. The people of Ballarat, up to 15,000 would gather at mass meetings which were called by the Ballarat Reform League which was established on the 11th of November, 1854. Now, there were no PA systems. People would have to project their voices over the crowd. And this was not representative democracy where you elect somebody to make decisions for you, as we will be in Victoria in the next few days regarding the Victorian state election for the next four years. This was based... This was based on the ideas that we talk about, direct democracy. Discussions were held, resolutions were passed, delegates were appointed or elected, 
these delegates then went down to Melbourne to negotiate with the uh, colonial government headed by Mr Hotham, Governor Hotham, and then they would come back and report back to the meeting. So this direct democracy based on a delegation. The direct democratic element to the Eureka Rebellion was so important that although the Eureka Rebellion was crushed in a sea of blood on the 3rd of December, the direct democracy element continued to be very important in political debate. And for the next 10 years, the direct democratic elements of the Eureka Rebellion met regularly through a delegate system at the eastern markets where the old Southern Cross Hotel was, less than 100 metres from Victorian Parliament House. They had a significant impact on the legislation which went through that parliament, which made Victoria, between 1854 and 1870, one of the most radical places on the planet. And that was because of that direct democratic element. The next important element in the Eureka Rebellion is direct action. What can be more direct than people taking up arms to defend their rights and liberties? So it's direct democracy, direct action. The third element of the Eureka Rebellion, which most people have forgotten, especially those people in society who wave the Eureka flag as some, you know, rebel without a cause flag or, or wave the Eureka flag as some racist flag. The Eureka Rebellion was an internationalist struggle. What binded people together was the oppression they suffered under the British colonial authorities. We had people of all races, all religions, all colours involved in the Eureka Rebellion. There was even a non-English speaking battalion headed by Raphael Caboni. And when the aftermath of the Eureka Massacre, and that's what it was, occurred, and people were arrested, and people were buried. And if you go to the old Ballarat Cemetery, which will be on the 3rd of December, and I'll speak about that in a minute, you will see people buried in a mass grave, Jews, Europeans, people from all corners of the earth. And of those 13 people who were tried for high treason and acquitted by a jury of their peers in 1855... You will see names long like John Joseph, a freed American slave who made his way from New York to the Ballarat Goldfields to seek his fortune, who was responsible for the death of Captain Wise, the deputy commander of the, of the colonial forces, who was acquitted by a white jury of his peers. Then you've got Mr Sorrison, a Jew. So this was an internationalist struggle. And the Eureka flag with the Southern Cross 
was a flag which highlighted not just internationalism or that struggle, because there are no symbols of colonialism, no religious symbols, just a constellation of stars which these people saw, which highlighted the new new life they had begun. And then you've got solidarity. The miners came together because of their common oppression and they worked together. Now, a lot of people like to portray the Eureka Rebellion as a rebellion of small business people, but it wasn't. The newspapers the next day, on the 4th of December, talked about anarchists and ruffians being involved in the Eureka Rebellion. But within 24 hours, the whole of Victoria was up in arms and the authorities realised that all their troops and their police were in Ballarat and they faced the prospect of another American revolution. And when a jury of their peers acquitted the 13 men who had been accused of high treason of any crime, the government understood that they had to compromise in order to survive, and compromise they did. And within 12 months of the revolt, some of the main leaders were, had been elected to Parliament. Could you imagine if you and I were involved in a rebellion today that we somehow would be elected to the Victorian Parliament within 12 months? Well, obviously, the authorities at that time were under such pressure they needed to accommodate and absorb that particular struggle. Now, this year is the 21st year to reclaim the radical spirit of the Eureka Rebellion group has been holding celebrations, and we hold celebrations for one very good reason, because Ballarat is a city that has forgotten its history. Ballarat is a city which spits on the graves of the Eureka rebels. It holds minimal celebrations on the day. It still refuses to fly the Eureka flag on the main flagpole. That's right, on the main flagpole, on the Ballarat City Hall on the 3rd of December. It is a city that uses the symbols, the Eureka flag, of the Eureka Rebellion to enrich itself and promote itself while not paying respect not just to the ideas, but to the people who died on that day. So 21 years ago, we made the decision that on the 3rd of December, we would honour that sacrifice. And the program is very simple. But this year, as many of our members are di- have died or are sick, this year, we have formed an alliance with Ballarat and Western Regions Trades Hall. And hopefully over the next few years, the Ballarat and Western Regions Trades Hall will play a more significant and prominent role in these celebrations, because these are celebrations for everybody. And if we are not willing to respect those who paid the ultimate price, not fighting for God, not fighting for country, 
not fighting for king or queen, but fighting for their own liberation, we do a disservice not just to those who die, but we do a disservice to us. So the program, very simple. We start off at Eureka Park at the corner of Eureka and Stall Street in Ballarat at 4am with a dawn ceremony. This goes from about 4am till sunrise at about 6am. Then we have a communal breakfast between 6 and 9. This is not some type of event where we cater for people, you know, and people pay money. This is an event that people come to and participate in. So I encourage you to bring food and drinks for the communal breakfast. At 10am we will meet at Bakery Hill, a few kilometres away from the Eureka Stockade site, to honour six activists who will receive a Eureka Australia medal for a lifetime of work that highlights how important the individual activist is in changing the society. At 11.30am we will meet at the Old Ballarat Cemetery at the Mass Grave. If you are coming to that part of the, of the um, commemorations, celebrations, I encourage you to bring flowers to place on the grave. Normally when we arrive there are very few indications that people have come to pay their respects. At one o'clock we'll trundle down to the uh, Ballarat Trades Hall for a um, lunch, light lunch and uh, drinks which are provided by Ballarat Trades Hall and from there we will meet at the Eureka Centre at 3pm where I'll do a uh, talk or conversation, interaction regarding the Eureka flag which is on display. And the great thing about the Eureka Centre on the 3rd of December is there is no entry charge for anybody. And then at 6pm we'll be having a Eureka dinner at the Queenshead Hotel in Humphrey Street. Now, no bookings are necessary. You take your chance. The more, the merrier. So it's a long program, 4am to 6pm. It's divided up into one, two, three, four, five, six, seven segments. You can take part in all the segments, what we call the... uh, or you can take part in one. It's up to you. If you can't make it this year, there's always next year. But the important thing is to mark the day. Whether you come to Ballarat or not is not pivotal. What is pivotal is that we mark the day, that we think about what happened on that day and the reasons it happened. And we think of the four pillars of the Eureka Rebellion. Direct democracy, direct action, solidarity and internationalism. You're listening to The Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. This program is streaming live on 3cr.org.au. The program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. Now, I know this may be a little bit boring for the rest of uh, Australia, but uh, 
There is a state election in Victoria coming up. Many people have already voted. And it's been fascinating. As a candidate, that's right, yes, yours truly is a candidate. Uh, on a Toscano for Mulgrave uh, segment. And I'm uh, interested on the fact that governments should satisfy basic human needs. And my policies, and you can go look at these policies on the Toscana for Mulgrave Facebook page, are based on food security, energy security, public housing, public health, public education, recreation. Many of these policies haven't been touched by anybody, but more importantly, it's not just the policies about satisfying basic human needs, but how to fund them. Because there's been two distinct lack of interest by the major political parties and the minor political parties and the so-called independents who are preferencing things. See, I'm a true independent. I'm not preferencing. I'm saying to people, you put one in my box if you're in the electorate of Mulgrave and there's 14 candidates, just number the other boxes, 2 to 14, any way you like. It's your vote. And I find it quite extraordinary. And I've been at pre-polling now for almost eight days. Not every, I've been there every day, but I haven't, you know... Some days I've been there all day. Other days other people have taken up the, uh, the campaign. But the fascinating thing is every other candidate has a piece of paper which tells people who they're going to vote for. Vote me, one, then two, three, four, five, six, seven. And when you actually look at the distribution preferences, you'll find that of the 14 candidates, I think 12 have asked their... Uh, people to put the uh, Premier of Victoria last on their uh, on their ballot paper. It's just fascinating to see how they're all cross-preferencing. But, you know, I say to people, you know the policies. But what I found fascinating is there are two things missing from this election. One, housing especially public housing, is the missing cog in the Victorian state election. One of the most important issues facing everybody is not a policy issue in this election. And the Victorian Greens have made a valiant effort to bring up housing. They call it affordable housing as an issue. But as far as public housing is concerned, I think I'm almost, not the only candidate, but almost the only candidate which is actually pushing the public housing barrow. And I pushed the public housing barrow for a very good reason. More public housing, less people in the, renting in the private sector, prices fall in the lower end of the market, more people can afford to buy homes, and if you use 50% of stamp duty revenue, which is levied on, you know, when you buy a new house. See, when you buy a new house, and I'm sure most of our listeners have had this experience because I find that most listeners to the Anarchist World this week aren't endowed with uh, property, let alone multiple properties. The fact is that you pay stamp duty, and it can be sixty, seventy, eighty thousand dollars $80,000 on top of the house, the price you're paying for the house. And that goes to the Victorian state government. That goes into consolidated revenue. Now, if you, of the $8 billion which will be collected in stamp duty in the, last, in the next 12 months, if you quarantine 50% of that, that's $4 billion, 
you could house 100,000 Victorians in public housing every year. Every year. And within a decade, you could house over a million Victorians, which is about 20% of the population in public housing. But no, both the Labor government and the Liberal government are hell-bent, or Liberal opposition, I should say, are hell-bent on privatising the public housing sector. Now, the other thing I found fascinating about the Victorian state election is nobody is talking about how they're going to raise the revenue for their promises. Now, I've made a few promises here, as I said. Food security, food vouchers, $150 for adult, $70 for child, per month for every adult on a social security benefit in Victoria. Food vouchers to be spent at food-related micro and small businesses registered with the state government. So this is a win-win for people who find it difficult to get enough food or reasonably quality food because uh, they're on social security benefit and also helps small business. Energy security. Now, it's interesting to see that Mr Andrews, the current Victorian Premier, after eight years of privatisation, privatising the Melbourne port, privatising the titles office, you know, privatising, pretend not to be privatising uh, Vic Roads, and the list goes on and on, you name it, it's not nailed down, it's privatised, has finally realised that having a state-owned energy facility, production facility, is a good thing, because it's a, it's a it's, it's a basic necessity. And he must have been listening to this program because he was talking about incorporating its ownership in the Victorian Constitution. There's only one problem. The Victorian Constitution is not decided on by the people of Victoria. It's decided on by the state government. It's not like a federal constitution where you need a referendum to change it. But when I talk about energy security, I'm not talking about some huge energy generating facility in the Latrobe Valley. But I'm talking about decentralised, publicly owned energy facilities across every city, every town and regional areas. Because having a centralised energy production facility makes us hostages, not only to natural disasters and war, but it makes us hostages to the private sector. So decentralised energy sources. Public housing, I've spoken about. Public health, well, we do need a not just an in- injection of cash into the system, we need to resurrect the public health sector in terms of prevention, in terms of disaster management. It needs to be resurrected, redone. When the influenza, the Spanish flu, the influenza pandemic caused havoc across Australia in 1919-1920, the response was quite piecemeal. And this led to the creation of a federal health department to coordinate responses. 
So there are different ways of looking at health in public education. Now, it's fascinating to see that the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, publicly owned, has made an alliance with the Smith family during Christmas. They usually make an alliance with some type of uh, privately owned charity to raise money to send kids to public schools. Now, this year is the 150th anniversary of the introduction of free secular compulsory education in Victoria, the first jurisdiction in the world, in the world, in 1872, and this was again as a result of the push of the Eureka Rebellion and the backwaters, 150 years later, we have private charities raising money to send Australian kids to public schools while billions of dollars flow from the Treasury at the state and federal level into the pockets of privately owned, religiously based schools. Think about it. And recreation. Now, I know you deserve a holiday. We all deserve a holiday. But, see, not everybody can afford a holiday. And under the policies I'm uh, recommending, every four years, every adult earning less than $1,000 per week will receive a, a 1000 accommodation travel voucher and every dependent child receives a $500 accommodation accommodation travel voucher to be used in Victoria. Again, it helps small business, gives people a break. When was the last time somebody on a social security benefit or somebody on a low wage trying to battle the current uh, economic uh, morass we find ourselves in able to afford a holiday, let alone the basic necessities of life? Now, the other thing that I've noticed about this state election is nobody's talking about how to raise money, as if taxes are nasty. Hmm? As if taxes are nasty. As if plain Robin Hood is nasty. Now I've got a few policies here. Wouldn't do much to dent rapidly increasing corporate profits, and I'll speak about that in a minute and speak about inflation. Things like, as I said before, 50% of stamp duty revenue to be quarantined for public housing. You don't have to build things over years. You can spot purchase around the, country, around the state. And as prices fall because of increasing interest rates, now is a great time to pounce. How about... Now, this is, this is so conservative, makes my eyes tear up. A 1% super land tax on landholders, individuals, businesses and corporations who own more than $5 million of property in Victoria. I can see them jumping up and down, telling us how they won't be able to look after their, you know, their, the new, pay for the new yacht they've bought. But, you know, a 1% super land tax, they wouldn't even notice it if you got more than $5 million of property in Victoria. A 1% rent tax on individuals, businesses and corporations who pay more than $5 million annually in rent. You see, a lot of businesses are very smart. They don't actually own things. They rent things because you can claim the rent as a tax deduction for your business. So if you're a corporation or an individual or a business who pays more than $5 million in rent every year, 1% tax. 
So if you pay $50 million, 10% is $5 million. So you pay half a million. It goes a long way to assisting people, doesn't it? And a 1% turnover tax on business and corporations who use virtual platforms, who pay minimal rent and payroll tax if they turn over more than $5 million annually. These are taxes which can be levied by the state government. These are just simple ideas. Nothing radical, simple ideas redistribute wealth. Now, Saturday, the 26th of November, is the day that uh, about 55, maybe 60% of Victorians will cast their ballot. About 40% will have cast it before then. And uh, we've been doing work through the pre-ballot in Mulgrave. So if you're interested in helping us get these ideas across, and obviously I'm not going to be elected, and obviously most likely I won't even make a dent in the um, debate, which has been hijacked by uh, people I'll speak about in a minute, but if you are interested, we have 17 centres to cover from 8.30am to 6pm. If you are interested, and unfortunately I've only got four covered to date, if you give us a ring on 0439 395 489, leave a message and I'll contact you. Not much time left, 0439 395 489. And obviously I take responsibility for any electoral material on this program. Let's move on. Freedom. If there's one thing I've noticed at the pre-polling booths in Victoria, it's not just the spiteful nature of this election, the lies, the misinformation, the disinformation, the harassment of potential voters, and the list goes on and on. You know, it's enough to make your gut turn. At the end of the day, if I spend a whole day there and I spend a few whole days there, you feel like you need to get under a shower to wash all the crap off. Because I, it is just extraordinary how misused the word freedom is. Now, obviously, freedom is an interesting concept. And I believe it's one of the most overused words in the, in the world, not just the English language. And it is a word that has been misconstrued, misused, every second of the day regarding this, this election campaign. And what we've seen is hard-headed neo-fascist elements recruiting amongst the 2 to 3% of anti-vaxxers in our society and using them as foot soldiers to promote this concept of freedom. So what is it, freedom? What is freedom? See... It's very easy. When people use the word freedom, you can actually divide freedom into, into two components. It's very easy. And that's what I do constantly, and that's how I ask questions. Freedom to and freedom from. Now, I'm part of the freedom from brigade. I'm not part of the freedom to brigade. I'm not part of the freedom to brigade that believes that you can wander around and spread infection willy-nilly. And I'm not part of the Freedom 2 Brigade that wants to pass legislation to remove a minimum wage or pass legislation to remove the protections which have been built up over decades for people with, you know, varying sexuality. 
And I'm not one who wants to pass legislation, freedom too, to allow people to vilify and abuse and hound and marginalise people because of the languages they speak, their racial origins, the colour of their skin, their religious beliefs. This is the Freedom 2 Brigade. And the Freedom True Brigade has become a significant part of the political spectrum, at least in the state of Victoria, and I'm sure the rest of Australia. And it has become that because they've moved from a direct action phase to an electoral phase and are heavily invested in this election. And we see organisations like the Liberal Democrats, who've always had a freedom to philosophy, being pushed aside by more authoritarian groups during this campaign. And I wouldn't be surprised if we see a few of them pop up in the Legislative Council after the 26th of November. So I'm part of the Freedom From campaign. And I'm sure most of the listeners to this program are part of the Freedom From, you know, a division of the word freedom. Freedom from hunger. Freedom from fear. Freedom from being vilified. The freedom from being exploited. Freedom from being excluded. And the list goes on and on. So don't be swayed by the word freedom. It means nothing. It means everything. It means different things to different people. And if you're confused by the debate, break it up into freedom to and freedom from. Do we want the freedom to own slaves? Which resulted in the American Civil War and the deaths of over a million people. Do we want the freedom for people who exploit labour, to continue to exploit labour and remove regulations which have been built over decades of struggle to protect people. Do we want people to have that freedom? Do we want freedom to allow people of various sexual identities to be hounded, to be ostracised? Because of their sexual preference or sexual identity. Or the language they speak. Do we want those type of freedoms? Well, they're not actually freedoms. They all come under the umbrella of freedom to exploit. You know, politics is very simple. Life is very simple. We're told that it's complex, it's difficult... There's misinformation, there's disinformation. I've heard some of the most ridiculous things over the last seven or eight days, things like Mr Andrews, the Premier, who you know, owns every house in Victoria. He's got this secret thing. I've, it just goes on and on and on and on, and it's concentrated in these little pre-ballot areas. So when you go down there, don't rush through like a little frightened rabbit, confront them. Say, freedom, what freedom do you want? And the list goes on and on. All right, I love economists. 
Do you love economists? I'm sure you do. And I love the Reserve Bank Governor. Well, I love his uh, analysis. He's, he's a brilliant man. Told us that interest rates wouldn't go up for years, and you know, obviously they're going up now. But that's 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 neither here or there. I've been listening to the latest dribble. Now, you're a worker, aren't you? You're a naughty, 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 naughty worker. Although we've removed the right to strike, except after, except during an enterprise bargaining agreement period. I understand that you naughty, 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 naughty people want a wage increase. Now, the Governor of the Reserve Bank is a very smart human being. He's almost as smart as some of the candidates I've seen in my uh, in Victoria recently. <laughs> almost as smart, but not as smart, I don't think. Now, he reckons that if these naughty workers make a fuss about increasing their wages to cope with inflation, that inflation will increase. Sounds good, doesn't it? Sounds very reasonable, doesn't it? But there is one thing the Governor of the Reserve Bank and most economic commentators have forgotten. We have increasing inflation, right? Decreasing wages. Wages growth has only been half of the inflationary spiral, right? We've got overpriced housing. We've got increased in interest rates. And obviously, this affects everybody. But you know what hasn't happened? Corporate profits have not decreased. Corporate profits are increasing. So it's the increase in corporate profits which is the elephant in the room which is causing inflation to increase. It is not demand by workers for wage parity with inflation. It's about increasing corporate profits. So it's the old story, isn't it? It's the old story we hear over and over again. If the economy's in a tailspin, it's your fault. It's the greedy workers' fault that it's in a tailspin. Or it's the war in the Ukraine. Or it's what they call supply chain limitations, which means we can't import as much shit as we usually import or export as much shit as we usually export. But how about increasing corporate profits? And you see, people say, oh, isn't that wonderful? Corporate profits will increase, and obviously that adds to inflation. How else do they get increasing corporate profits in a time of increasing interest rates? They're the inflationary engine. But at the same time, as you get increasing corporate profits, people with superannuation, many listening to this program with superannuation, who are happy to pay for their retirement in 20, 30, 40 years' time, will say, oh, that's all right, it'll flow through to me. Well, I'm afraid not. Increasing corporate profits do not flow through to the real economy. Increasing corporate profits are shared 
by shareholders and normally by the major shareholders. So although we've got increasing inflation, stagnation as far as wage growth is concerned, increasing interest rates, we have increasing corporate profits during this period and we have increased dividends to shareholders. Think about it. And next time you see one of these economic experts bob around on your TV screen or on your you know, computer screen or on your telephone, think about the real reasons we find ourselves in this situation. Because we live in a private investment of a private profit world. And if push came to shove and we had a food crisis in this country and you didn't have the resources to buy that loaf of bread, I can assure you, you'd starve. That's what a private investment for private profit society is all about. Let's take this one step further. One step further. How about we see, as I said before, one step further, take it one step further, How about all these people who've been affected by floods and fires over the last three years and the number of us which will be increasingly affected by the climate emergency? I mean, that's why it's a climate emergency. Let's forget about the fact that we allowed governments at the state level and councils allowed people to build on floodplains because, you know, there's a buck to be made. Let's forget about that. Now, the private, you see, in this country where the private investment for private profit mantra is the single most important aspect of existence. Forget about the Bible, the Koran, the Torahs, the Hindu scripts. Forget about all that. It's all about private investment for private profit. Now, these poor people have not only had their lives turned up and down, they are now being told that they will no longer be able to buy insurance in the future because the private insurance companies have done their homework. They're out there to make a buck. See, when you buy insurance, it's a a lose-lose situation. Now, I'm not telling you not to buy insurance. I've got insurance, all right? But it's very simple. It's a bet. It's like going down to the TAB or your local whatever and betting some money. They are betting that you will never have to claim on that insurance, that you're not going to be flooded, you're not going to be burnt out, whatever. And don't worry, if you're you're bombed, insurance doesn't cover you, okay? Forget about that. But these things, you know, a tree's not going to fall over your house and, you know, that's what they're betting. You're saying, oh, in case it happens, I'm going to give you this money and you will look after me. The fact is that we have now reached the stage like we've seen every element of our society where the private sector is not able to provide the security people need as far as their future is concerned whether it's health care whether it's education whether it's energy production In a time that we actually fought about creating 
a national, publicly owned insurance company to compete with the private sector? Remember what happened when the Commonwealth Bank was privatised, which was then publicly owned? Prices, fees and charges went off the scale. You, you know, they just increased. There's no competition in a corporate-dominated economy. And that's why corporate profits inc- continue to increase despite increasing interest rates, despite inflation. They continue to increase because there is no competition when you've got three or four large corporations monopolising one field of human endeavour, and especially if there's no competition with government-owned facilities, whether it's a bank, whether it's an airline, whether it's a train line, whether it's insurance, whether it's healthcare, whether it's education, and the list goes on and on. So think about it. We need a dramatic change in the way we look at things. And what I found quite disconcerting regarding the federal election campaign which I was involved in and the state election campaign in Victoria is the fact that most people now think that change is impossible. They're leaving the field open to those segments in our society who want to centralise power and centralise wealth. And this makes it an extremely dangerous period in human history, especially history in this country. When people resign to the fact that nothing will ever change, nothing will ever change. And there's a resignation that you shrug your shoulders, that you can't fight City Hall, that you put your head down and you doff your cap. This type of attitude is the very type of attitude which the private investors for private profit corporations love, love to see. Let's move on. I know we're running out of time. West Papua, yes, still an issue. Here in Melbourne, we have a West Papua office which is managed by the West Papua community and their supporters. Nine years ago, we set up a rent collective to pay the rent for the Collins Street office. And this West Papuan office in Melbourne is pivotal to the West Papuan independence struggle around the world and in many regards acts as a de facto embassy for the West Papuan independence struggle. Now, we have three significant functions every year for supporters of the West Papuan movement. And obviously they're designed to keep the West Papuan Rent Collective together and to encourage other people to join the West Papuan Rent Collective. So the next West Papuan gathering, the end of the year gathering, will be at 1pm on Sunday the 11th of December. That's just around the corner. 1pm on Sunday the 11th of December. There'll be Obviously we'll be encouraging people to join the West Papuan Rent Collective, which is a dollar a day, $365 a year or $30 a month, and obviously there'll be a number of interesting items for auctions, 
including two handmade uh, stools by that uh, well-known um, maker of uh, recycled timber uh, uh, things, uh, David McKenzie, as well as some uh, interesting West Papuan uh, issue uh, materials. So come along. You don't have to ring anybody. Just pop in. I think uh, if you're a West Papuan Rent Collective member, you don't pay for lunch. If you're not, we try to ask for a $15 donation, but that can be waived if it has to be. Now, one more thing. You may not realise this, as you're not interested in sport, but there is a Soccer World Cup in Qatar, and I was very interested in it because... All the Johnny-come-latelys started to talk about Qatar's human rights record. It's not brilliant. Not brilliant. 15,000 workers, you know, guest workers, in inverted commas, dying, building the facilities over the last uh, decade. Not a brilliant record. Their record as far as, uh, you know, people with different sexualities concerned, not very good. Then I thought... Aren't we holding a soccer world club cup or a football world cup here in Australia in 2023, the Women's World Cup? I hope against hope that nobody will be looking at our human rights record. The fact that we detain people for more than 10 years for having the audacity to claim political asylum. The fact that we turn away boats in mid-ocean. The fact that we have continued to exploit this country's First Nations people. The fact that a country which should be able to look after the needs of its population, 25 million people living on a continent, can't even provide basic education for public schools. And the list goes on and on. It's quite extraordinary when you think about it. Now, so I know you know about all about Qatar, but let's be really, really, really quiet about our human rights record because who knows? There could be countries who come here who could be causing a fuss. You've been listening to The Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. My name is Joseph Toscano. This program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. If you like the program, keep listening. If you don't like it, do something else. And don't forget, the Anarchist World This Week T-shirts are available for $35. Thrill your friends. Half of the cost goes towards paying for my studio fees here at the Anarchist World This Week. So give Marion a ring right now and order a, order a shirt now. 9039 039-419-8377. 039-419-8377. Listen to The Anarchist World this week on your local community radio station next week, courtesy of the Community Radio Network. Evil minds that plot destruction Sorcerer of death's construction An analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Anarchist World this week. Australia's Sacred Cow Slaughterhouse, 10am every Wednesday. Listen to The Anarchist World this week for an up-to-date analysis of local, national and international events.
wash my hands. Oh, Lord, yeah. Become a 3CR subscriber today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03-9419-8377. Be a part of your community radio station. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.